Wealth, Essay 3 of Conduct of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Christopher June. Conduct of Life by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Fate. Who shall tell you what did befall far away in time when once, over the lifeless ball, hung idle stars and suns? What God the elements obeyed, wings of what wind the lichen bore, wafting the puny seeds of power, which, lodged in rocks, the rock abraid. And while the primal pioneer knew the strong task to it assigned, patient though heaven's enamored year, to build and matter home for mind. From air of creeping centuries drew, this matted thicket low and wide, this must the leaves of ages strew, the granite slab of cloth and hide, ere wheat can wave its golden pride. What smiths and in what furnace rolled, in dizzy aeons, dim and mute, the reeling brain can ill compute, copper and iron, lead and gold, what oldest star the fame can save, of race perishing to pave, the planet with a floor of lime, dust is their pyramid and mole, who saw what firms and palms were pressed under the tumbling mountain's breasts, in the safe herbal of the coal. But when the quarry means were piled, all is waste and worthless till, arrives the wise selecting will, and out of the slime and chaos wit, draws the threads of fair and fit, then temples rose and towns and marts, the shop of toil, the hall of arts, then flew the sails across the seas to feed the north from tropic trees. The strong wind wove the torrent span, where they were bid the rivers ran, new slaves fulfilled the poet's dream, galvanic wire, strong-shouldered stream, then docks were built and crops were stored, and ingots added to the hoard. But though light-handed man forget, remembering matter pays her debt, still through her motes and masses draw, electric thrills and tides of law, which bring the strength of nature wild to the conscience of a child. As soon as a stranger is introduced into any company, one of the first questions which all wish to have answered is, how does that man get his living? And with reason. He is no whole man until he knows how to earn a blameless livelihood. Society is barbarous until every industrious man can get his living without dishonest customs. Every man is a consumer, and ought to be a producer. He fails to make his place good in the world, unless he not only pays his debt, but also adds something to the commonwealth. Nor can he do justice to his genius, without making some larger demand on the world than a bare subsistence. He is by constitution expensive, and needs to be rich. Wealth has its source in applications of the mind to nature, from the rudest strokes of spade and axe up to the last secrets of art. Intimate ties subsist between thought and all production, because a better order is equivalent to vast amounts of brute labor. The forces and resistances are nature's, but the mind acts in bringing things from where they bound to where they are wanted, in wise combining, in directing the practice of the useful arts, and in the creation of finer values, by fine art, by eloquence, by song, or the reproductions of memory. Wealth is in applications of mind to nature, and the art of getting rich consists not in industry, much less in saving, but in better order, in timeliness, in being at the right spot. One man has stronger arms or longer legs, another seized by the course of streams and grows of markets, where land will be wanted, makes a clearing of the river, goes to sleep, and wakes up rich. Steam is no stronger now than it was a hundred years ago, but is put to better use. A clever fellow was acquainted with the expansive force of steam. He also saw the wealth of wheat and grass rotting in Michigan. Then he cunningly screws on the steam pipe to the wheat crop. Puff now, O oh steam! The steam puffs and expands as before, but this time it is dragging all Michigan on its back to hungry New York and hungry England. Coal lay in ledges under the ground since the flood, until a laborer with pick and windlass brings it to the surface. We may well call it black diamonds. Every basket is power and civilization, for coal is a portable climate. It carries the heat of the tropics to Labrador and the polar circle. 
and is the means of transporting itself whithersoever it is wanted. Watt and Stephenson whispered in the ear of mankind their secret that half ounce of coal will draw two tons a mile, and coal carries coal, by rail and by boat, to make Canada as warm as Calcutta, and with its comfort brings its industrial power. When the farmer's peaches are taken from under the tree and carried into town, they have a new look and a hundredfold value over the fruit which grew on the same bough and lies fulsomely on the ground. The craft of the merchant is this, bringing things to where it abounds to where it is costly. Wealth begins in a tight roof that keeps the rain and wind out, in a good pump that yields you plenty of sweet water, in two clean suits so to change your dress when you are wet, in dry sticks to burn, in a good double-wick lamp, and three meals, in a horse or a locomotive to cross the land, and the boat to cross the sea, and tools to work with, and books to read, and so, in giving on all sides, by tools and auxiliaries, the greatest possible extension of our powers, as if it added feet and hands and eyes and blood, length of the days, and knowledge and good will. Wealth begins with these articles of necessity, and here we must recite the iron law which nature thunders in these northern climates. First, she requires that each man should feed himself. If, happily, his father has left him no inheritance, he must go to work, and by making his wants less, or his gains more, he must draw himself out of the state of pain and insult in which she forces the beggar to lie. She gives him no rest until this is done. She starves, taunts, and torments him, takes away warmth, laughter, sleep, friends, and daylight, until he has fought his way for his own loaf. Then, less peremptorily, and still with sting enough, she urges him to the acquisition of such things as belong to him. Every warehouse and shop window, every fruit tree, and every thought of every hour opens a new want to him, which it concerns his power and dignity to gratify. It is of no use to argue the wants down. The philosophers have laid the greatness of man in making his wants few. But will a man content himself with a hut and a handful of dried peace? He is born to be rich. He is thoroughly related, and is tempted out by his appetites, and fancies to the conquest of this or that piece of nature, until he finds his well-being and the use of his planet, and of more planets than his own. Wealth requires, beside the crust of bread on the roof, a freedom of the city, a freedom of the earth, traveling, machinery, the benefits of science, music, and fine arts, the best culture, and the best company. He is the rich man who can avail himself of all men's faculties. He is the richest who knows how to draw a benefit from the labors of the greatest number of men, of men in distant countries and in past times. The same correspondence that is between thirst and the stomach, the water and the spring, exists between the whole man and the whole of nature. The elements offer their service to him. The sea, washing the equator and the poles, offers its perilous aid, and the power and the empire that follow it, day by day to his craft and audacity. Beware of me, it says, but if you can hold me, I am the key to all the lands. Fire offers, on its side, an equal power. Fire, steam, lightning, gravity, ledges of rock, mines of iron, lead, quicksilver, tin and gold. Forests of all woods, fruits of all climates, animals of all habits, the power of tillage, the fabric of its chemical laboratory, the webs of its looms, the masculine draught of his locomotives, the talismans of his machine shop, all grand and subtle things, minerals, gases, ethers, passions, war, trade, government, are his natural playmates, and, according to the excellence of the machinery in each human being, is his attraction for the instruments he is to employ. The world is his tool chest, and he is successful, or his education is carried out in so far as the marriage of his faculties with nature, or the degree in which he takes up things into himself. The strong race is strong in these terms. The Saxons are the merchants of the world, now, for a thousand years, the leading race, and by nothing more than their quality of personal independence, and, in its special modification, pecuniary independence. No reliance for bread and games on the government, no clanship, no patriarchal style of living by the revenues of chief, no marrying on, no system of clientship suits them, but every man must pay his scot. 
The English are prosperous and peaceable, with their habit of considering that every man must take care of himself, and he has himself to thank if he do not maintain and improve his position in society. The subject of economy mixes itself with morals, inasmuch as it is a peremptory point of virtue that a man's independence be secured. Poverty demoralizes. A man in debt is so far a slave, and Wall Street thinks it easy for a millionaire to be a man of his word, a man of honor, but that, in failing circumstance, no man can be relied on to keep up his integrity. And when one observes in the hotels and palaces of our Atlantic capitals the habit of expense, the riot of the senses, the absence of bonds, clanship, fellow feeling of any kind, he feels that, when a man or woman is driven to the wall, the chances of integrity are frightfully diminished, as if virtue were coming to a luxury which few could afford, or, as Burke said, at a market almost too high for humanity. He may fix his inventory of necessities and his enjoyments on what scale he pleases, but if he wishes the power and privilege of thought, the chalking out of his own career, and having society in his own terms, he must bring his wants within his proper power to satisfy. The manly part is to do with might and main what you can do. The world is full of fops who never did anything, and who have persuaded beauties and men of genius to wear their fop livery, and these will deliver the fop opinion that it is not respectable to be seen earning a living. It is much more respectable to spend without earning. And this doctrine of the snake will come also from the elect sons of light, for wise men are not wise at all hours, and will speak five times from their taste or their humor to one of their reason. The brave workman, who might betray his feelings of in his manners, if he did not succumb in his practice, must replace the grace or elegance fortified by the merit of the work done, no matter whether he makes shoes or statutes or laws. It is the privilege of any human work which is well done to invest the doer with a certain haughtiness. He can well afford not to conciliate, whose faithful work will answer for him. The mechanic at his bench carries a quiet heart and assured manners, and deals on even terms with men of any condition. The artist has made his picture so true that it disconcerts criticism. The statue is so beautiful that it contracts no stain from the market, and makes the market a silent gallery for itself. The case of the young lawyer was pitiful to discuss, a paltry matter of buttons and tweezer cases, but the determined youth saw in it an aperture to insert his dangerous wedges, made the insignificance of the thing forgotten, and gave fame by a sense of energy to the name and affairs of the Tittleton Snuffbox Factory. Society in large towns is babyish, and wealth is made a toy. The life of pleasure is so ostentatious that a shallow observer must believe that this is the agreed best use of wealth, and whatever is pretended, it ends in cosseting. But if this were the main use of surplus capital, it would bring us to the barricades, burned towns, and tomahawks presently. Men of sense esteem wealth to be the assimilation of nature to themselves, the converting of the sap and juices of the planet to the incarnation and nutriment of their design. Power is what they want, not candy. Power to execute their design. Power to give legs and feet. Form and actuality to their thought, which, to a clear-sighted man, appears to the end for which the universe exists, and all its resources might be well applied. Columbus thinks that the sphere is a problem for practical navigation, as well as for closet geometry, and looks on all kings and peoples as cowardly landsmen until they dare fit him out. Few men on the planet have more truly belonged to it, but he was forced to leave much of his map blank. His successors inherited his map, and inherited his fury to complete it. So the men of the mine, telegraph, mill, map, and survey, the monomaniacs who talk of their projects in marts, and offices, and entreat men to subscribe, how did their factories get built? How did North America get netted with iron rails, except by the importunity of these orators, who dragged all the prudent men in? Is party the madness of many for the gain of the few? This speculative genius is the madness of the few for the gain of the world. The projectors are sacrificed, but the public is the gainer. Each of these idealists, working after his thought, would make it tyrannical if he could. He's met and antagonized by other speculators, as hot as he. 
the equilibrium is preserved by their counteractions, so one tree keeps down another in the forest, and it may not absorb all the sap in the ground. In the supply and nature of railroad presidents, copper miners, grand junctioners, smoke burners, fire annihilators, etc., is limited by the same law which keeps the proportion in the law of carbon, of alum, and of hydrogen. To be rich is to have a ticket of admission to the masterworks and chief men of each race is to have the sea by voyaging, to visit the mountains, Niagara, the Nile, the desert, Rome, Paris, Constantinople, to see galleries, libraries, arsenals, manufactories. The reader of Humboldt's cosmos follows the marches of man whose eyes, ears, and mind are armed by all of science, arts, and implements, which mankind have anywhere accumulated, and who is using these to add to the stock. So it is with Dunnan, Beckford, Belzoni, Wilkinson, Laird, Kane, Lepsius, and Livingston. The rich man, said Saadi, is everywhere expected and at home. The rich take up something more of the world into man's life. They include the country as well as the town, the ocean side, the white hills, the far west, and the old European homesteads of man, and the notion of available material. The world is his, who has money to go over it. He arrives at the seashore, and the sumptuous ship has floored and carpeted for him the stormy Atlantic, and made it a luxurious hotel amid the horrors and tempests. The Persians say, "'Tis the same to him who wears a shoe as if the whole world were covered in leather.'" Kings are said to have long arms, but every man should have long arms, and should pluck his living, his instruments, his power, and his knowing from the sun, moon, and stars. Is not then the demand for it to be rich legitimate? Yet I have never seen a rich man. I have never seen a man as rich as all men ought to be, or with an adequate command of nature. The pulpit and the press have many commonplaces denouncing the thirst for wealth. But if men should take these moralists at the word, and leave off aiming to be rich, the moralists would rush to rekindle at all hazards this love of power in the people, lest civilization should be undone. Men are urged by their ideas to acquire the command over nature. Ages derive a culture from the wealth of Roman Caesars, leal tents, magnificent kings of France, grand dukes of Tuscany, dukes of Devonshire, Townleys, Vernons, and Peels in England, or whatever great proprietors. It is interest of all men that sh there should be Vatican's and Louvre's full of noble works of art, British museums and French gardens of plants, Philadelphia academies and natural history. Bolan, Ambrosian, Royal, Congressional Libraries, it is the interest of all who there should be exploring expeditions, Captain Cook's to voyage around the world, Ross's, Franklin's, Richardson's, and Keynes, to find the magnetic and the geographic poles. We are all richer for the measurement of a degree of latitude on the Earth's surface. Our navigation is safer for the chart. How intimately our knowledge of the system of the universe rests on that, and a true economy in a state or an individual will forget its frugality in behalf of claims like these. Whilst it is each man's interest that not only ease and convenience of living, but also wealth or surplus product should exist somewhere, it need not be in his hands, often it is very undesirable to him. Goethe said, nobody should be rich who does not understand it. Some men are born to own, and can animate all their possessions. Others cannot. Their owning is not graceful. It seems to be a compromise to their character. They seem to steal their own dividends. They should own who can administer, not they who hoard and conceal, not they who, the great proprietors they are, are only the great beggars, but whose work carves out work for more, opens a path for all. For he is a rich man in whom the people are rich, and he is a poor man in whom the people are poor, and how to give all access to the masterpieces of art and nature is the problem of civilization. The socialism of our day has done good service in setting men on thinking how certain civilization benefits, not only enjoyed by the opulent, can be enjoyed by all. For example, the providing of each man the means of apparatus of science and of the arts. There are many articles good for occasional use, which few men are able to own. Every man wishes to see the rings of Saturn, the satellites and belts of Jupiter and Mars, the mountains and craters of the moon, but how few can own a telescope, and of those scarcely one would like the trouble of keeping in order and exhibiting it.
so have electrical and chemical apparatus, and many of the other things. Every man may have occasion to consult books which he does not care to possess, such as cyclopedias, dictionaries, tables, charts, maps, and public documents. Pictures also of birds, beasts, fishes, shells, trees, flowers, whose names he desires to know. There is a refining influence from the arts of design on a prepared man, which is positive as that of music, not to be supplied from any other source, but pictures, engravings, statues, and casts, besides their first costs and tailor expenses, as of galleries and keepers of the exhibition, and the uses which any man can make use of is rare, and their value, too, is much enhanced by the number of men who can share their enjoyment. In the Greek cities, it was reckoned profane that any person should pretend a property in a work of art which belonged to all who could behold it. I think sometimes, could I only have music on my own terms, could I live in the great city and know where I could go whenever I wished the ablution and inundation of musical waves, that were a bath and a medicine. If properties of this kind were owned by states, towns, and lyceums, they would draw the bonds of neighborhood closer. A town would exist to an intellectual purpose. In Europe, where the feudal forms secure the permits of wealth in certain families, those families buy and preserve these things and lay them open to the public. But in America, where democratic institutions divide every state into smaller portions, after a few years, the public should step into the place of these proprietors and provide this cultural inspiration for the citizen. Man was born to be rich, or inevitably grows rich by the use of his faculties, by the union of thought with nature. Property is an intellectual production. The game requires coolness, right reasoning, promptness, and patience in the player. Cultivated labor drives our brute labor. An infinite number of shrewd men in infinite years have arrived at certain best and shortest ways of doing, and these accumulated skills in art, cultures, harvesting, curings, manufactures, navigations, expenses, exchanges, constitute the worth of our world today. Commerce is a game of skill, which every man cannot play, which few men can play well. The right merchant is one who has the just average of faculties we call common sense, a man of a strong affinity for facts, who makes up his decision on what he has seen. He is thoroughly persuaded by the truths of arithmetic. There is always a reason in the man for his good or bad fortune, and so in making money. Men talk as if there were some magic about it, and believe in magic in all parts of life. He knows that all goes on the old road, pound for pound, cent for cent, for every effect of perfect cause, and that good luck is another name for tenacity of purpose. He insures himself in every transaction, and likes small and sure gains. Probity and closeness effects are the basis, but the masters of the arts add a certain long arithmetic. The problem is to combine many and remote operations with the accuracy and adherence to the facts, which is easy in near and small transactions, so to arrive at gigantic results without any compromise to safety. Napoleon was fond of telling the story of the Marseille banker, who said to the visitor, surprised at the contrast between the splendor of the banker's chateau and hospitality, and the meanness of the conning room in which he had seen him, Young man, you are too young to understand how masses are formed. The true and only power, whether composed of money, water, or men, is all alike. A mass is an immense center of motion, but it must be begun, and it must be kept up. And he might have added that the way in which it must be begun and kept up is by obedience to the laws of particles. Success consists in close appliance to the laws of the world, and, since those laws are intellectual and moral, an intellectual and moral obedience. Political economy is as good a book wherein to read the life of man and the ascendancy of laws over all private and hostile influences as any Bible which has come down to us. Money is representative, and follows the nature and fortunes of its owner. The coin is a delicate meter of civil, social, and moral changes. The farmer is covetous of his dollar, and with reason. It is no waif to him. He knows how many strokes of labor it represents. His bones ache with the day's work that earned it. He knows how much land it represents, how much rain, frost, and sunshine. He knows that, in the dollar, he gives you so much discretion and patience. 
so much hoeing and threshing. Try to lift his dollar, you must lift all that weight. In the city, where money follows the skid of a pen, or a lucky rise in exchange, it comes to be looked at as light. I wish the farmer held it dear, and would spend it only for real bread, force for force. The farmer's dollar is heavy, and the clerk's is light and nimble, leaps out of his pocket, jumps on to cards and faro tables, but still more curious is its susceptibility to metaphysical changes. It is the finest barometer of social storms, and announces revolutions. Every step of civil advancement makes every man's dollar worth more. In California, the country where it grew, what would it buy? A few years since, it would buy a shanty, dysentery, hunger, bad company, and crime. There are wide countries like Siberia where it would buy little else today than some petty mitigation of suffering. In Rome, it will buy beauty and magnificence. Four years ago, a dollar would not buy much in Boston. Now it will buy a great deal more in our old town, thanks to railroad, telegraph, steamers, and the contemporaneous growth of New York and the whole country. Yet there are many goods appertaining to a capital city which are not yet purchasable there. No, not with a mountain of dollars. A dollar in Florida is not worth a dollar in Massachusetts. A dollar is not value, but representative value, and at last, of moral values. A dollar is rated for the corn it will buy or, to speak strictly, not for the corn or house-room, but for the Athenian corn and Roman house-room, for the wit, probity, and power which will eat bread and dwell in houses to share and exert. Wealth is mental. Wealth is moral. The value of a dollar is to buy just things. A dollar goes on increasing in value with all the genius, all the virtues of the world. A dollar in a university is worth more than a dollar in jail. In a temperate, schooled, law-abiding community than in some sink of crime where dice, knives, and arsenic are in constant play. The banknote detector is a useful publication, but the current dollar, silver, or paper is itself the detector of the right and wrong where it circulates. Is it not instantly enhanced by the increase of equity? If a trader refuses to sell his vote or adheres to some odious right, he makes so much more equity in the Massachusetts, and every acre in the state is worth more in the house of his action. If you take out a state street, the ten honestest merchants, and put in ten roguish persons, controlling the same amount of capital, the rates of insurance will indicate it, the soundness of the bank will show it, the highways will be less secure, the school will feel it, the children will bring home their little dose of the poison, the judge will sit less firmly on his bench, and his decisions will be less upright. He has lost so much support and constraint, which all need, and the pulpit will betray it, and he lacks the rule of life. An apple tree, if you take out every day, for a number of days, a load of loam, and put in a loam of sand about its roots, will find it out. An apple tree is a stupid kind of creature, but if this treatment be pursued for a short time, I think it will begin to mistrust something. And if you should take out the powerful class engaged in trade a hundred good men, and put in a hundred bad, or, what is the same thing, introduce a demoralizing institution, would not the dollar, which is not much stupider than an apple tree, presently find it out? The value of a dollar is social, as it is created by society. Every man who removes into the city, with any perturbable talent or skill in him, gives to every man's labor in that city a new worth. If a talent is anywhere born into the world, the community of nations is enriched, and much more, with a new degree of probity. The expense of crime, one of the principal charges of every nation, is so far stopped. In Europe, crime is observed to increase or abate with the price of bread. If the Rothschilds at Paris do not accept bills, the people of Manchester at Paisley and Birmingham are forced into the highways, and landlords are shot in Ireland. The police records attest it. The vibrations are presently felt in New York, New Orleans, and Chicago. Not much otherwise, the economical power touches the masses through the political lords. Rothschild refuses the Russian loan, and there is peace, and the harvests are saved and an agitation through the large portion of mankind, and every hideous result ending in revolution and a new order. Wealth brings with it its own checks and balances. The basis of political economy is not interference. The only safe rule is found in the self-adjusting meter of demand and supply. Do not legislate. Meddle, and you snap the sinews with your sumptuary laws. 
give no bounties, make equal laws, secure life and property, and you need not give alms. Open the doors of opportunity to talent and virtue, and they will do themselves justice, and property will not be in bad hands. In a free and just commonwealth, property rushes to the idle and imbecile, to the industrious, brave, and persevering. The laws of nature play through trade, as a toy battery exhibits the effects of electricity. The level of the sea is not more surely kept than is the equilibrium of value in society, by the demands and supply, and the artifice of legislation punishes itself, by reactions, gluts, and bankruptcies. The sublime laws played indifferently through atoms and galaxies. Whoever knows what happens in the getting and spending of a loaf of bread and a pint of beer, that no wishing will change the rigorous limits of pints and penny loaves, that for all that is consumed, so much less remain of the basket and pot. But what has gone out of these is not wasted, but well spent, if it nourish his body and enable him to finish his task, knows all of political economy that the budgets of empires can teach him. The interest of petty economy is the symbolization of the great economy, the way in which a house and a private man's methods tally with the solar system and the laws of give and take through nature, and however wary we are of the falsehoods and petty tricks of what we suicidally play off in each other, every man has a certain satisfaction whenever his dealings touches on the inevitable facts, when he sees that things dictate the price, as they always tend to do, and in large manufacturers are seen to do. Your paper is not fine or coarse enough, it is too heavy or too thin. The manufacturer says he will furnish you with that thickness or thinness you want. The pattern is quite indifferent to him. Here is the schedule. Any variety of paper, as cheaper or dearer, with the price it annexed. A pound of paper costs so much, and you may have it made up in any pattern you fancy. There is in all our dealings a self-regulation that supersedes chaffering. You will rent a house, you will have it cheap. The owner can reduce the rent, so he incapacitates himself from making proper repairs, and the tenant gets not the house he would have, but a worse one. Besides, that a relation a little injurious is establishing between landlord and tenant. You dismiss your laborer, saying, Patrick, I shall send you as soon as I cannot do without you. Patrick goes off contented, for he knows that the weeds will grow with the potatoes. The vines must be planted next year, and however unwilling you may be, the cantaloupes, crooknecks, and cucumbers will send for him. Who but must wish that all labor and value should stand on the same simple and surly market? If it is not the best of its kind, it will. We must have joiner, locksmith, planner, priest, poet, doctor, cook, weaver, ostler, each in turn throughout the year. If a St. Michael's pear sells for a shilling, it costs a shilling to raise it. If in Boston the best securities offer 12% for money, they have just 6% of the insecurity. You may not see that the fine pair costs you a shilling, but it costs the community so much. The shilling represents the number of enemies the pair has, and the amount of risk in ripening it. The price of coal shows the narrowness of the coal field, and a compulsory confinement to the miners to a certain district. All salaries are reckoned on contingent, as well as on actual services. If the winds were always southwest by west, said the skipper, women might take ships to sea. One might say that all things are of one price, that nothing is cheap or dear, and that the apparent disparities that strike us are only a shopman's trick of concealing the damage in your bargain. A youth coming into the city from his native New Hampshire harm, with his hard fare still fresh in his remembrance, boards at a first-class hotel and believes he must somehow have outwitted Dr. Franklin and Malthus, for luxuries are cheap. It pays for the one convenience of a better dinner by the loss of some of the richest social and educational advantages. He has lost what guards, what incentives. He will perhaps find by and by that he finds the muses at the door of the hotel, and finds the furies inside. Money often costs too much, and power and pleasure are not cheap. The ancient poet said, the gods sell things at a fair price. There is an example of the compensations in the commercial history of the country. When the European wars threw the carrying trade of the world from 1800 to 1812 into American bottoms, a seizure was now and then made of an American ship. 
Of course the loss was serious to the owner, but the country was indemnified, for we charged three pence a pound for carrying cotton, sixpence for tobacco, and so on, which paid for the risks and loss, and brought into the country an immense prosperity, early marriages, private wealth, and the building of cities and of states. And after the war was over, we received compensation over and above by treaty for all the seizures. While the Americans grew rich and great, but the payday comes round, Britain, France, and Germany, which our extraordinary profits have impoverished, send out, attracted by the fame of our advantages, first their thousands, then their millions of poor people to share the crop. At first we employ them and increase their prosperity, but in the artificial system of society and of protected labor, which we also have adopted in large, there comes presently checks and stoppages. Then we refuse to employ these poor men, but they will not be so answered. They go into the poor rates, and, though we refuse wages, we must now pay the same amount in the form of taxes. Again, it turns out that the largest proportion of crimes are committed by foreigners. The costs of the crimes, and the expenses of the courts, and of prisons we must bear, and the standing army of preventative police we must pay. The cost of education of the posterity of this great colony I will not compute, but the gross amount of these costs will begin to pay back what we thought was a net gain from our transatlantic customers of 1800. It is vain to refuse this payment. We cannot get rid of these people, and we cannot get rid of their will to be supported. That has become an inevitable element of our politics, and for their votes, each of the dominant parties courts in a system to get it executed. Moreover, we have to pay, and that would have contented them at home, but what they have learned to think necessary here, so that opinion, fancy, and all manner of moral considerations complicate the problem. There are a few measures of economy which will bear to be named without disgust. For the subject is tender, we may easily have too much of it, and therein resembles the hideous animacules of which our bodies are built up, which, offensive in the particular, yet compose valuable and effective masses. Our nature and genius force us to respect ends, whilst we use means. We must use the means, and yet, in our most accurate using, somehow screen and cloak them, as we can only give them any beauty by reflection of the glory of the ends. That is the good head, which serves the end, and commands the means. The rabble are corrupted by their means. The means are too strong for them, and they desert their end. 1. The first of these measures is that each man's expense must proceed from his character. As long as your genius buys, the investment is safe, though you spend like a monarch. Nature arms each man with some faculty which enables him to do easily some feat impossible to any other, and thus makes him necessary to society. This native determination guides his labor and his spending. He wants an equipment of means and tools proper to his talent, and to save on this point were to neutralize the special strength and helpfulness of his mind. Do your work, respecting the excellence of the work, and not its acceptableness. This is so much economy that, rightly read, it is the sum of economy. Profligacy consists not in spending years of time or chests of money, but in spending them off the line of your career. The crime which bankrupts men and states is job work, declining from your main design to serve a turn here or there. Nothing is beneath you if it is in the direction of your life. Nothing is great or desirable if it is off from that. I think we are entitled here to draw a straight line and say that society can never prosper, but must always be bankrupt, until every man does that which he was created to do. Spend for your expense, and retrench the expense which is not yours. Alston the painter was wont to say that he built a plain house and filled it with plain furniture because he would hold out no bribe for any to visit him, who had that similar taste to his own. We are sympathetic, and like children want everything we see. But it is a large stride to independence, when a man, in his discovery of his proper talent, has sunk the necessity for false expenses. As a betrothed maiden, by one secured affection, is relieved from a system of slaveries, the daily inculcated necessity of pleasing all, so the man who has found what he can do can spend on that and leave all other spending. Montaigne said, when he was a younger brother, he went brave in dress and equipage, but afterwards his chateau and farms might answer for him. 
Let a man who belongs to the class of nobles, those namely who have found out that they can do something, relieve themselves of all vague squandering on objects not his. Let the realist not mind appearances. Let him delegate to others the costly courtesies and decorations of social life. The virtues are economists, but some of the vices are also. Thus, next to humility, I have noticed that pride is a pretty good husband. A good pride is, as I reckon it, worth from five hundred to fifteen hundred a year. Pride is handsome, economical. Pride eradicates so many vices, letting none subsist but itself, that it seems as if it were a great gain to exchange vanity for pride. Pride can go without domestics, without fine clothes, can live in a house with two rooms, can eat potato, purslane, beans, lied corn, can work on the soil, can travel afoot, can talk with poor men, or sit silent, well contented in fine saloons. But vanity costs money, labor, horses, men, women, health, and peace, and still is nothing at last, a long way leading nowhere. Only one drawback. Proud people are intolerably selfish, and the vain are gentle and giving. Art is a jealous mistress, and if a man have a genius for painting, poetry, music, architecture, or philosophy, he makes a bad husband, and an ill provider, and should be wise in season, not fetter himself with duties which will embitter his days and spoil him for his proper work. We had in this region, twenty years ago, among our educated men, a sort of Arcadian fanaticism, a passionate desire to go upon the land, and unite farming to the intellectual pursuits. Many effected their purpose, and made the experiment, and some became downright plowmen, but all were cured of their faith that scholarship and practical farming, I mean with one's own hands, could be united. With brow bent, with firm intent, the pale scholar leaves his desk to dry for your breath, and get a juster statement of his thoughts in a garden walk. He seeps to pull at a purslane or a dock that is choking the young corn, and finds there are two. Close behind the last is a third. He reaches out his hand to a fourth. Behind that there are four thousand and one. He is heated and untuned, and by and by wakes up from his idiot dream of chickweed and red root, to remember his morning thought, and to find that, with his adamantine purposes, he has been duped by a dandelion. A garden is like those pernicious machineries we read of every month in the newspapers, which catch a man's coat skirt or his hand, and draw on his arm, his leg, and his whole body to irresistible destruction. In an evil hour he has pulled down his wall and added a field to his homestead. No land is bad, but land is worse. If a man own land, the land owns him. Now let him leave home if he dare. Every tree and graft, every hill of melons, row of corn, or quickest hedge, all he has done, and all he means to do, stand in the way, like duns, and he would go out of his gate. The devotion of these vines and trees he finds poisonous. Long free walks, a circuit of miles, free his brain and serve his body. Long marches are no hardship to him. He believes he composes easily on the hills, but this powdering in a few square yards of garden is dispiriting and driveling. The smell of the plants has drugged him, and robbed him of his energy. He finds a catalepsy in his bones. He grows peevish and poor-spirited. The genius of reading and gardening are antagonistic, like resinous and vitreous electricity. One is concentrative in sparks and shocks, the other is diffuse strength, so that each disqualifies its workman for the other's duties. An engraver, whose hands must be an exquisite delicacy of stroke, should not lay stone walls. Sir David Brewster gives exact instructions for microscopic observation. Lie down on your back, and hold the single lens and object over your eyes, etc., etc., how much more the seeker of abstract truth who needs periods of isolation, rapt concentration, and almost a going out of body to think. 2. Spend after your genius, and by system. Nature goes by rule, not by sallies and saltations. There must be system in the economies. Saving and unexpensiveness will not keep the most pathetic family from ruin, nor will bigger incomes make the free spending safe. The secret of success is never in the amount of money, but in the relation of income to outgo. As if, after expense has been fixed at a certain point, then new and steadily rills of income, though never so small, being added, wealth begins. But in ordinary, as means increase, spending increases, faster so that large incomes in England and elsewhere are found not to help matters. The eating quality of debt does not relax its veracity.
when the coal arose in the potato, was the use of planting large crops. In England, the richest country in the world, I was assured by shrewd observers that the great lords and ladies have no more guineas to give away than other people. The liberality with money is as rare and as, and as immediately famous a virtue as it is here. Want is a growing giant, which the code of have was never large enough to cover. I remember in Warwickshire to have been shown a fair manner, still in the same name as in Shakespeare's time. The rent roll, I was told, is some fourteen thousand pounds a year, but when the second son of the late proprietor was born, the father was perplexed how to provide for him. The eldest son must inherit the manor. What to do with this supernumerary? He was advised to breed him for the church, and to settle him in the rectorship, which was in the gift of the family, which was done. It was a general rule in that country, the bigger the incomes do not help anybody. It is commonly observed that a sudden wealth, like a prize drawn on a lottery, or a large bequest to a poor family, does not permanently enrich. They have served no apprenticeship to wealth, and with the rapid wealth comes rapid claims, which they do not know how to deny, and the treasure is quickly dissipated. A system must be in every economy, or the best single expedients are of no avail. A farm is a good thing when it begins and ends with itself, and does not need a salary or a shop to eke it out. Thus the cattle are a main link in the chain ring. If the nonconformist or ascetic farmer leaves out the cattle, and does not also leave out the want which the cattle must supply, he must fill in the gap by begging or stealing. When men now alive were born, the farm yielded everything that was consumed on it. The farm yielded no money, and the farmer got on without it. If he fell sick, his neighbors came to his aid. Each gave a day's work, or a half a day, or lent his yoke of oxen, or a horse, or kept his work even. Coed his potato, mowed his hay, reaped his rye, well knowing that no man could afford to hire labor without selling his land. In autumn, a farmer could sell an ox or a hog, and get a little money to pay taxes withal. Now, the farmer buys almost all he consumes, tinware, cloth, sugar, tea, coffee, fish, coal, railroad tickets, and newspapers. A master in each art is required, because the practice is never with still or dead subjects, but with change in your hands. You think farm buildings and broad acres a solid property, but its value is flowing like water. It requires as much watching as if you were decanting wine from a cask. The farmer knows what to do with it, stops every leak, turns all the steamless into one reservoir, and decants wine. Bloody blunderhead comes out of Cornhill, tries his hand, and it all leaks away. So it is with granite sheets, or timber townships, or the fruit of flowers. Nor is any investment so permanent that it can be allowed to remain without incessant watching, as the history of each attempt to lock up an inheritance through two generations for an unborn inheritor may show. When Mr. Cocaine takes a cottage in the country and will keep his cows, he thinks the cow is a creature that is fed on hay, and gives a pail of milk twice a day. But the cow that he buys gives milk for three months, then her bag dries up. What to do with a dry cow? Who will buy her? Perhaps he bought also a yoke of oxen to do his work, but they get blown and lame. What to do with a blown lame oxen? The farmer fats his, and after the spring work is done, he kills them in the fall. But how can Cocaine, who has no pastures, and leaves his cottage daily in the cars, at business hours, be pothered with fattening and killing oxen? He plants trees, but there must be crops, to keep the trees in ploughed land. What shall be the crops? He will have nothing to do with trees, but will have grass. After a year or two, the grass must be turned up and ploughed. Now what crops? Credulous Cocaine. 3. Help comes in the custom of the country, and the rules of impera parando. The rule is not to dictate, not to insist on carrying out each of your screens by ignorant willfulness, but to learn practically the secret spoken from all nature, that things themselves will refuse to be mismanaged, and will show to the watchful their own law. Nobody needs to hand or foot. The custom of the country will do it all. I know not how to build or a plant, neither how to buy wood, nor what to do with the house lot, the field, the wood lot, when bought. Never fear. It is all settled how it shall be, long beforehand, in the customs of the country. Whether to sand, or whether to clay it, when to plough, and how to dress, whether to grass, how to corn. 
and you cannot help or hinder it. Nature has her own best mode of doing each thing, and she has somewhere told it plainly, if we will keep our eyes and ears open. If not, she will not be slow in undeceiving us, when we prefer our own ways to hers. How often we must remember the art of the surgeon, which, in replacing a broken bone, contends itself with releasing the parts from false position. They fall into their place by the action of the muscles. On this art of nature all the arts rely. Of the two eminent engineers in the recent construction of railroads in England, Mr. Bruno went straight from terminus to terminus, through mountains, over streams, crossing highways, cutting ducal estates in two, and shooting through this man's cellar and that man's attic window, and so arriving at his end at great pleasures to geometrists, but with cost to his company. Mr. Stevenson, on the contrary, believed that the river knows the way, followed his valley as implicitly as our western railroad follows the Westfield River, and turned out to be the safest and cheapest engineer. We say the cows laid out Boston. Well, there are worse of errors. Every pedestrian in our pastures has frequent occasion to thank the cows for cutting the best path through the thicket and over the hills, and travelers Indians know the value of Buffalo Trail, which is sure to be the easiest possible pass through the ridge. When a citizen, fresh from Dockshire or Milk Street, comes out and buys land in this country, his first thought is to look at the outlook from his windows. His library must command a western view, a sunset every day, bathing his shoulder of blue hills, Wakasut, and the, and the peaks of Monadnock, and Enkunak. What, thirty acres and all this magnificence for fifteen thousand dollars? It would be cheap at fifty thousand. He proceeds at once, his dim eyes with tears of joy, to fix the spot for his cornerstone. But the man who is to his level on the ground thinks it will take many hundred loads of gravel to fill the hollow of the road. The stonemason who should build the walls thinks he should have to dig forty feet. The bigger doubts he shall never like to drive up to the door. The practical neighbor cavils at the position of the farm, and the citizen comes to know that his predecessor farmer built the house on the right spot for the sun and wind, the spring, the water drainage, and the convenience to the pasture, the garden, the field, and the road. So Dock Square yields the point, and things have their own way. Use has made the farmer wise, and the foolish citizen learns to take his counsel. From step to step he comes at last to surrender his discretion. The farmer affects to take his commands, but the citizen says, You may ask me as often as you will, and in what ingenious forms, for an opinion concerning the mode of building my wall, or sinking my well, or laying out my acre, but the ball will rebound to you. There are matters in which I neither know nor need to know anything. There are questions which you and not I shall answer. Not less, within doors, a system settles itself paramount and tyrannical over masters and mistress, servant and child, cousin and acquaintance. Tis in vain that genius or virtue or energy or character strive to cry against it this is fate. And tis very well that the poor husband reads in a book of a new way of living, and resolves to adapt it at home. Let him go home and try it, if he dare. 4. Another point of economy is to look for seed of the same kind that you sow, and not to hope to buy one kind with another. Friendship buys friendship, justice justice, military merit, military success. Good husbandry finds wife, children, and household. The good merchant large gains, ships, stocks, and money. The good poet fame and literary credit, but not either or the other. Yet there is commonly a confusion of expectations on these points. Hotspur lives for the moment, praises himself for it, and despises Furlong that he does not. Hotspur, of course, is poor, and Furlong a good provider. The odd circumstance is that Hotspur thinks it a superiority in himself, this improvidence, which ought to be rewarded with Furlong's lands. I have not at all completed my design, but we shall not leave the topic without casting one glance at the interior recesses. Is a doctrine of philosophy that man is a being of degrees, that there is nothing in the world which is not repeated in his body, his body being a sort of miniature or summary of the world, then that there is nothing in his body which is not repeated in the celestial spheres in his mind, then there is nothing in his brain which is not repeated in a higher sphere in his moral system. 
5. Now these things are so in nature. All things ascend, and the royal rule of economy is that it should ascend also, or whatever we do must also have a higher aim. Thus it is a maxim, the money is another kind of blood, pecuniae altera sanguis, or the estate of man is only a larger kind of body, and admits of regimen analogous to his bodily circulations. So there is no maxim of the merchant, example given, best use of money is to pay debts, every business by itself, best time is the present time, the right investment is the tools for your trade, or the like which does not admit of an extended sense. The conning room maxims liberally expound our laws of the universe. The merchant's economy is a coarse symbol for the soul's economy. It is to spend for power and not for pleasure. It is to invest income, that is to say, to take up particulars into generals, days into integral eras, literary and motive practical of its life, and still to ascend in its investment. The merchant has but one rule, absorb and invest. He is to be a capitalist. The scraps and filings must be gathered back in the crucible. The gas and smoke must be burned. And earnings must not go to increase expense, but to capital again. Well, the man must be a capitalist. Will he spend his income or will he invest? His body and every organ is under the same law. His body is a jar in which the liquor of life is stored. Will he spend for pleasure? The way to ruin is short and facile. Will he not spend but hoard for power? It passes through the sacred fermentations, by that law of nature whereby everything climbs to higher platforms, and bodily vigor becomes mental and moral vigor. The bread he eats is first strength in animal spirits. It becomes in high laboratories imagery and thought, and in still higher results courage and endurance. This is the right compound interest. This is capital double, quadrupled, centupled. Man raised to his highest power. The true thrift is always to spend on a higher plane, to invest, and invest with keener avarice that he may spend in spiritual creation, not in augmenting animal existence. Nor is the man enriched in repeating the old experiments of animal sensation, nor unless through the new powers of ascending pleasures he knows himself by the actual experience of higher good to be already on his way to the highest. End of Wealth Recording by Daniel Christopher June you can visit my website at www.perfectideas.com. It's perfectideus.com.